For some of us, we come to the holiday season and more specifically Christmas with a sense of joy. I would just even ask, like in the room, how many of you, when it comes around Christmas time, you're feeling that joy? Come on, who's feeling it? All right. That's not even half, guys. All right. Uh, let's just point out what's really going on. You don't, it's sort of like since the pandemic hit, nobody knows what to say anymore. I don't know how I feel. I'm not sure. I'm angry. <laughs> no, I don't know. But uh, that's about normal. In every service, it was about 50%. We're just believing by faith that there's more online that are getting us over the joy, joy, joyometer here. But not all of us approach Christmas with that sense of joy. That's, that's not all of us. Many of us approach this season. Certainly, we want to celebrate the birth of Christ, and he means everything to us. But there is loss. Maybe there's pain Maybe we identify with some sense of, of what has transpired in the past, and it, it sort of comes into our present, and it reminds us of things that we don't want to think about or want to be reminded of, and so there's, there's pain, there's loss. There's this sense of, like, I should be excited and joyful, but I don't feel that way, and I just want you to know that God sees you and loves you no matter where you're at, and, and we're probably all in different places, but let me just tell you, no matter how we came in here tonight, we can leave refreshed. We can leave encouraged because we're focusing on Jesus. And that's the beauty to me of Christmas is that no matter where we are or who we are, as we look at Jesus, something special happens in our hearts. And it happens for every person in the room and every one of us that's gathering together all over the world on this glorious day. We look at Jesus and we remember there's something transcendent, there's something greater than whatever it is that we face and the pain that we go through. And it is Christ, the Lord, born into our world because he loved us. The Bible says it as clear as day, that God so loved the world that he gave didn't have to. He gave his one and only son. Don't you love that? Aren't you grateful that God gave his one and only son? And we come and we certainly celebrate that. I um, was thinking about some nativity scenes. Uh, I was at a person's house that's a member of the church, a longstanding member of the church, and I will leave her name out to protect the guilty. But I was looking at all of the nativity scenes that she has in her home. We, we have one or two. I, I actually don't remember anymore, but I was seeing, I don't know, 20, 25, 17. I don't know. There's a number of them there. And it just sort of dawned on me because I've been reading the story of Jesus's birth, Matthew chapter 1, 2, and Luke chapter 1 and 2 as well. And I've been absorbing that story, thinking about it. It's been mulling over in my mind. It's part of how I prepare messages, but I want to absorb this this account in my spirit, like, Lord, what is this? And, and try to look at it from God's perspective and ask him to speak to me. And I was thinking about the nativity scene, and I was asking a few people, do you know what the word nativity means? I think it's an assumption. We have a lot of words that we use, and if I asked you, what does nativity mean? You may not, you may not know. Some Christians did not know the answer to that. But this is what it means. The word nativity means birth, origin, and it includes the circumstances thereof for that birth or origin. So we say the Christmas nativity, right? That's what we're talking about. We say the nativity of Jesus. We're, that's, that's, we would have to associate it with Christ. But a lot of us have these nativity sets in our home. Some of you have uh, this one. There are two most popular. Let me show you one of them. How many of you actually have this one? Last service, a lot of people had this one. These are the two most popular that people will typically buy. And then let me see the next one. How many of you have this one? Okay, more hands up, up there. All right, I don't want you to feel guilty. All right, that's not going to happen. 
Uh, but for the rest of us that are on a budget, we have this one. This is the one I like. That's, that's the one we have right there. That's the one. We're going to send all your kids home with that. You're welcome. I know it's, a fairly, it's fairly sacrilegious, but I, I'm, and I don't mean it for that, but um, there was another one that had a pack of camel cigarettes on the side there for the camels. Uh, apparently, there were camels there. I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, you can remove that. Thank you. I was, uh, what's interesting about all of these nativity sets is there's some right to what you see in the picture, but there's also some things that are not right. There's some things that are in that picture that didn't actually happen when you read the Christmas story. They're not really there. Or you're reading a collaborative story that took about a year and a half, and they're all sort of there, like wham, like God can do that. He can put a year and a half worth of things into one story. And I'm not trying to ruin your nativity set, and that's not my point tonight, so don't take that home with you. But I just thought, in, in my mind, sometimes what will happen is we don't know what what details are biblical or which ones are fabricated for tradition or, or maybe some other thing because Jesus' birth is so amazing that singers and storytellers across the centuries have embellished and elaborated and sometimes mythologized some of these things. And we sort of have this picture in our mind that the major, major scene has singing angels and snow and lots of worshipers and a little drummer boy. There was no drummer boy. There was no drummer girl. There was no drum. But we think of it this way because of tradition. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm not trying to say that we've got to make sure that everything's specifically accurate. You know, some people will really attack it. They just go after it. That's not my point. But what if I told you that the more things sanitize and commercialize over time, it's not that we get the details wrong. It's that it covers up some beauty that we're missing. Because I think that there's a lot of things about the nativity, the birth of Christ, that are unlikely. A lot of things that don't seem to add up. A lot of things that we wouldn't do if, if we were in the position of bringing forth this glorious story, which we know as a historical account. I think there are things that get commercialized that sell. There are things that get sanitized that look nice. But what they're doing at times is covering up the beauty that God intended at the nativity scene. And I, and I pray that as we look at this together, that God, and, and I prayed this, that God would give us a sense of awe when we look at the details. The details matter. The birth of Christ, absolutely, but the details surrounding it, they're profound, and, and they matter. I'm going to read to you 20 verses, Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 20. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. 
This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in a manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. It looks to me like the shepherds are the first evangelists. At face value, the story is unlikely to me on so many levels, and it's important for me to say that because of this. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is all-loving. God is good. He's glorious. He's magnificent. He's, he's all of that. He's, he's beyond words and comprehension. God, God is powerful, and he chooses to bring forth his son, the story, the, the, the way in which mankind could be redeemed. He chooses to do it this way. I don't know if you've thought about that before, but this is a messy, unlikely story as we look at sort of the details. And I think that it could be said, if we pause and consider the, the Christmas nativity, we'll see something even deeper underneath it than just what we know happened for sure because God reveals himself not only in Jesus Christ being born, but also the circumstances for which he was born. C.S. Lewis said this about the incarnation, which is Christ being born, God being made flesh. The incarnation, in the incarnation, all previous expectations of God lie in ruins and most who see it are offended. Blessed are those who are not. Listen to what he said. Our expectations lie in ruins. What C.S. Lewis is trying to say, which I think I felt as I read the story over and over, is that this is an unlikely story. The, the things are improbable. It fuels the skeptic mind. It, it's something that makes you wonder why or how or are you sure? Why them and why this and why then and why there? And C.S. Lewis is saying, that it just wrecks our expectations of God because we all have them. We all think of God as a certain way or would do things a certain way. We all have these thoughts about, about God. We all have opinions and viewpoints. And in the incarnation, the coming of Christ, it shatters a lot of that stuff. It shatters what God is like when we think of God in terms of power and authority and, and all that he is. Why did he choose to do things the way that he did? I don't know if I can offer you an answer to all of that, but I certainly can extrapolate some of these details and, and think through them uh, with you. But if I were God, I can honestly say I probably wouldn't have done any of this this way. I, I would have done things entirely different. I mean, that's a strange thought, isn't it, to say if I were God. Uh, I'm sorry, that sounds terrible to even say that. But I think it's important that we, we ask the question why. There's some power in that. First, I want to look at the unlikely family. We know from Luke 3 and Matthew 1 that Joseph and Mary were descendants of King David, but that may be the only thing that we note on a natural level that sort of qualifies them to be who they were in this story. 
Why did God choose them specifically? It's, there's not much to note that we can kind of pull things apart. And as a preacher, I can tell you that I've done it. I've pulled apart some of the integrity of Joseph and really the sincerity of Mary. And I don't want to do away with any of that. But there were lots of people that were probably similar to, to this. They were descendants of King David. That was right. But, but here's some things. First is, is that they were a very poor couple. Luke chapter 2 says they offered two pigeons at Jesus' dedication. Well, what does that mean? That means they couldn't afford a lamb. And in the book of Leviticus, if you went to offer a a sacrifice or you were dedicating your child, if you could not afford a lamb, then you would bring two pigeons or it says turtle doves. And that was a concession in the law. And poor people did that. And that's what it means. I've, I've actually heard people say that Joseph and Mary weren't poor. I don't know where they get that. You must have to go to some kind of church to think that. But I've, heard, but I've heard this case made, and I just want to say it like this. There's, there's no way that's true, number one. But number two is that the one who has everything entrusted himself to those that practically had nothing. And what's powerful to me about this is that sometimes people will assert that, well, Pastor Ben, what about the Magi? Well, first of all, the Magi didn't come to the scene. They were at least six months, if not a year and a half late. So I know that some of your nativity scenes have them right in there and you might want to put them on the shelf because they're on their way, but they're not there yet. (laughs) We joked about that the other night. We might want to put them like, you know, a block down the road. I mean, they're coming, but they're certainly not there. But but they brought with them gifts to pay homage to the king and it was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I've heard people say, well, they were certainly rich after they received the gift, right? What What if? What if God was funding the next traveling endeavor that he called them to. Not long after, God called Joseph, Mary, and Jesus to go to Egypt, and now they have gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We don't know how much, but what if that was the gift that God called them to give because he needed to fund their next trip for where they were going and not somehow to make them rich? And, and uh, I mean, at that point, Jesus was practically a toddler and could have probably held the gold. I mean, don't go too far in your mind with that one, though. Look what Paul's perspective was of the incarnation in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. He said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. This is a powerful picture is that he humbled himself, not because he wanted to make us rich like wealthy, but he wanted us to be rich in God, rich toward God. God humbled himself in Christ so that we might be lifted up. Because in the scheme of things, no matter how much money we have, we're all poor as it pertains to what we have spiritually speaking. Bankrupt, we have nothing to offer. Jesus not only came to the poor, but he came through the poor. What what an amazing thought. It also leads me to think about, in this unlikely family, the miraculous conception. Now, a lot of Christianity surrounds around the virgin birth because Isaiah 7.14 prophesies that the Messiah would come through a virgin. Luke chapter 1 tells us the angel Gabriel visits Mary, a virgin teenage girl, and tells her the Holy Spirit will overshadow her and she will be with child supernaturally. Mary and Joseph were betrothed, which basically means they were in a one-year legal engagement to be married. It's a courtship that's uh, within the Jewish structure of relationship but they were to have no intimate relationship. There was no sexual relationship. And so now Joseph's having to grapple with the fact that this woman he's betrothed to is pregnant. 
And so it says in the passage, not this one, but in Matthew's version of this, it says that Joseph was a man of integrity and he didn't want to accuse his soon-to-be wife because if he did, she would be stoned. But she's pregnant and he's having to deal with that and so he thinks she slept with another man and it says that he decided to put her away secretly because he was a man of integrity. He didn't want her to be harmed. He was, a, he was a good man, obviously. But he had an angel appear to him in the middle of the night, and the angel said to him, this is of the Lord. And so he woke up with the fear of God, and it says that he took her to be his wife. But what kind of shame would have come to them in this community? I want you to just dwell on that for a moment. She's pregnant. They knew that they, these guys were not supposed to be intimate. When he took her to be his wife, the community most likely thought, this is probable, that they had a relation, intimate relationship and that's where the child came from because he didn't accuse her and he took her to be his wife. He didn't put her away either. And so there's a level of shame that had come to them. And let's put it like this, that there's a type of suspicion toward Jesus when he is going to be born that he could be an illegitimate child. Now think of that for a second. Like God, the giver of the law and all that is true and right and good in terms of purity and holiness and relationships. He allows the scenario within the virgin birth and the structure of all of that, even fulfilling the promise for the bearer of his plan and even his own child to be potentially have this suspicion around them as God's plan manifested through Christ. It's just sort of mind-boggling to me. It just is unlikely. It, it seems strange. It seems odd. And, and, and I know that sometimes we don't want to think that. We want to sanitize the story, but you've got to look at it and just sort of take a step back and go, wow. There's also an unlikely birthplace. Caesar Augustus, it says here in the first few verses, ordered a census and Mary and Joseph traveled 90 miles while she was eight months to nine months pregnant. Hey, ladies, how about that? I think not. We know she was that far along because when they get to Bethlehem, which is probably a minimum of five to t 10 days, depending on how fast they went, it's 90 miles away. She had the baby right away. And they go to the city of Bethlehem. Now, that's very important. Historically, we read in Micah chapter five and verse two, there's a prophecy that indicates the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But not all people believed that. They, Herod had to call the scribes and the Pharisees to say, where is the Messiah actually going to be born? And in Matthew chapter 2, they come out and they say, well, Bethlehem certainly is going to be that place. What's interesting about that is Herod didn't know. Herod didn't know and a lot of people didn't know. But Bethlehem is like a nowheresville. I mean, in that day at least. It had shrunk in its significance. It used to be the city of David, but now it's nowheresville. That's the town that I'm going to officially name it. I've been to Bethlehem. It's about 60,000 people right now. But back then, it was hardly anything, and it's sort of like, and this is going to be offensive if you come from one of these cities that I name, I'm sorry in advance, but it'd be kind of like a, a Milton or an Ording. Now, you don't move to Milton because it's the city of what's happening now. You didn't move out to Ording because you wanted to be around so many people. In fact, you probably decided you didn't. Come on, let's be honest tonight. You didn't move to Federal We live down the street. There's a difference between down the street and Ording. I'm just telling you, all right? We know that for a fact. But this is where Bethlehem was in ancient times. It had shrunk in its significance. And I would think, or at least this is in my mind, if a king's going to be born, a lot of people during that time thought, it's going to be Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem is the place where people go, go to offer sacrifices. Jerusalem is the place where people go to the temple to worship God. Jerusalem is the place that's hopping. It's where the feasts are. People travel long distances to go to this holy place. Certainly the Messiah of Israel is going to be born in Jerusalem. We have a prophecy that would tell us otherwise. And people would might, they might think that, but Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We know that he was born in, some people would say, a stable and a manger, but it's not a stable. Look what Luke chapter 2 and verse 7 says. It, it says that Mary gave birth to Jesus and wrapped him in claws and laid him in a manger. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but Mary got up after giving birth and wrapped Jesus up with cloths. That sounds kind of crazy to me. I've been a spectator at a couple births, and I wasn't even capable of doing some of the duties. You understand? One time I almost passed out. <laughs> My wife had to consult. You laugh. It's true. I don't know why. You may think less of me. If you're a guest, you can judge me. That's fine. You shouldn't. The Bible says not to. But anyhow, <laughs> just throw it out there. But she gets up after giving birth, and she's a teenager. I know a lot of the nativity scenes show her as an older woman, but she's not an older woman. She's a teenager, and she wraps Jesus in these cloths, and she places him in a manger. I mean, it doesn't say anything about Joseph. Like, Joseph could have helped, but it doesn't mention that. It says that there was no room in the inn, and sometimes we think that that means that they went to some ancient motel. There was no motel. There was no innkeeper. If you have a nativity scene and there's a little innkeeper there, he does not exist. There's no inn or motel. The word inn is the same word that is often used for upper room. It's the same word when you look over at, for example, the last Passover, and it says that they made preparations in the upper room. It's the same exact word here used for inn. It's a little bit of a complicated word, but it is an upper room. Why? They've excavated a lot of houses in places like this, and they have found that the living quarters were upstairs and downstairs was a place where they would prepare food and they would bring in the domesticated animals at night to protect them from the elements. And so there was no room in the upper quarters because they went to probably went to Joseph's ancestral home. And when they got there, the elders and others were occupying any space upstairs for sleep and all they had left was downstairs. And so that's where they had Jesus. They had Jesus and it smelled like animals. He was born into a world that literally smelled. And it had all kinds of agricultural tools lying on the ground. There were animals there, and it was just Mary and Joseph, and this is where they had Jesus. There was no cave. There was no stable. This was the bottom floor of a home because there was no room for them upstairs. And I don't, I don't know why they didn't make room for a pregnant woman. That's probably a great question. But this is important because we know that she, when she gave birth, she wrapped him in these cloths. They would usually wrap up a, a brand new, like a, a newly born lamb in a cloth. They wouldn't place him in a manger, but they would wrap a lamb. And that's why they would have these swaddling cloths. That's what they were for. They weren't for babies. They were for lambs. Jesus is the lamb. You, you see where it, this is powerful because... As he was being wrapped up and he was placed in a manger, there's only two kinds of mangers. There's one that's made out of stone and it's for drinking for the animals. It's a drinking trough. And the other one's made out of wood and it's a feeding trough. The king of all glory was placed in something that animals would eat or drink from. I mean, this just seems unlikely. We're talking about the one, it's, the Bible says that everything that was made was made through him. 
including that trough. I mean, given given us hands to to make things with. And and here it is, we're putting him into this this place. And Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus humbled himself. Do you see it? Do you see in the passage how he had to humble himself? I mean, God humbled himself, not only in coming as a baby, but look at the circumstances. This is wild. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. But there's also some unlikely witnesses. I'm just thinking that if you had an important story that you needed to convey with precision and accuracy, you would choose people that you thought would do the best job at getting that message across exactly as you needed it to. Agreed? All right, what's amazing though is we see that God calls the shepherds of Bethlehem to be the ones that would first receive the proclamation that Jesus the Messiah was born. Verse 8 to 20 is devoted to the shepherds. And it's important for us to know that shepherds, they were not the occupation that everyone wanted. A lot of shepherds were not trustworthy. There's a lot of literature that I've read, rabbinical literature, that talks about how it's one of the eight occupations that rabbis would teach fathers to steer their sons away from. It's called herders, but it's the same word, it's shepherds. It's one of the eight. Rabbis would say, you never want to be a shepherd. They didn't always have standing in legal court proceedings. Um, They weren't always at the temple, not always welcome. It, It was one of those roles in life or occupations in life that people steered from. And here God does decides to proclaim through angels that the Messiah was born. I, for me, I would have sent an angel to Mary and Joseph to kind of seal the deal of what just happened. I mean, yes, they had an angelic encounter months before. That did happen. But I think like it just seems right. And in our nativity scene, there's an angel right there at the nativity scene. Isn't that true? There was no angel at the actual scene. The angels were out here in the fields proclaiming it to the shepherds. And then the shepherds came from where they were to where Jesus was born and they found him. And it says, as they did, they were telling everybody what they encountered with the angels. I mean, they didn't keep nothing to themselves. And so we have these unlikely witnesses. Even if we argued, well, Ben, these were good shepherds. (laughs) Okay. And I've had people even tell me and somebody, and, and I think this is, probable, but people would say they were lay priests and they were the ones preparing the lambs. I've looked at a lot of research. I can't find that. It's possible. I can't find that. What I can find is a lot of research on what shepherds weren't and how they weren't trusted. You can find a lot of literature about, about that. So we could argue they were good shepherds, but you still see the problem in their credibility as a witness. The second is the Magi of the East. They're not in Luke 2, but they're in Matthew 2, and they're visible in most nativity scenes that we own but they really weren't there at the actual scene. They came many months or quite frankly, maybe a year and a half later, Jesus could have been walking and talking at that point. The Magi were astrologers from Babylon or Persia. And it says in Matthew 2 that they saw a star, which could not be an actual star in in my perspective, but it was probably the Shekinah of God. It was probably the glory of the Lord that they saw as they were astrologers. They were looking at stars, but I think they saw something They saw the star maker put something special in the sky over his son. And they saw that and they traveled 900 miles by following a star. 900 miles. Can you imagine doing that? These are dangerous roads. They're walking along these terrible paths to get to this place. Took them a long time uh, to get there. Under great duress, they, they did. We don't know a lot about the Magi. 
What we do know is in Daniel chapter 2 and 9 that the term enchanters, the people that the king would bring before them as enchanters, that word is used as also magi. And so they were potentially, we'd say magicians, but that's not accurate. They were enchanters of some kind, and they were in the king's court. So they're honored in another land, but how would they know that there was a Messiah of Israel that was to be born? How would they know? This was not of their religion. It was not of their people. How would they know? In Israel, there is a Messiah that is to be born, and we should be looking in the stars, and when we see a star, we should follow the star because that must be the Messiah that we as a culture and people do not believe in. How would they know? Well, maybe it is that many years before God's judgment of his people Israel in sending those people into Babylon, we call it the Babylonian captivity. Maybe it was Daniel, maybe it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Maybe it was another Israelite who told those enchanters that there will come a king, there will be a Messiah that will be born at some point, and the Jewish people are awaiting him. And maybe those magi told their kids And as they kind of grew up, they were always looking for this promise that wasn't of their people or their culture, but they heard about it from those that were under judgment in their land. Maybe God used that judgment and at a later time brought forth some people who would be the funders of them going to Egypt. I mean, God does, when you look at the story, it's just unlikely, you understand, it's improbable, but God brought this all about. And and, and my main point tonight is, is one point. I only, I only want to have, have you walk away with one thing. The reason that these things are unlikely in my mind and that God would entrust himself in such vulnerability to people like this, to a situation like this, to a story like this that just can't sell. You just can't sell this to people. There has to be power in this message when you share it. There has to be a reality in it that is spiritual that goes beyond intellect. There has to be something that is underneath this that God alone can do when he touches the human heart. There's got to be because in these circumstances, we may not fully understand why God chose to bring this about, but I would tell you one of the reasons is because we find ourselves in a story like this. I don't know if, 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 if we see ourselves the way that we ought to, but, but when we come to Christ, it means that we have to lower ourselves, humble ourselves, and admit that we need a savior, that we need forgiveness, that we need love, that we are deficient in and of ourselves, but there is one that says, I have given you something that is sufficient, and that is Christ, the savior that was born. There is one that satisfies, there is one that fills the holes that that we all have. That's part of the story. We are the shepherds. We are the poor. We are those people. We may not see ourselves that way, but that's the truth. He didn't give himself to a palace. He gave himself to peasants. And I think the gospel says something to us about that, is that if we feel like we're those born for the palace in that natural sense, we need to lower ourselves and say, you know what? I need a savior. I'm not all of that. I'm not, I'm missing something. And and that's what the gospel actually says. That's why C.S. Lewis would tell us that in the incarnation of Christ, when we look upon Jesus being born, if a man or a woman cannot acknowledge their need, they cannot know Christ. I've never personally related to this statement, you know, I'm a good person. I don't understand, I mean, I get what people mean. They mean like relatively speaking, like I do good deeds, I try to do well, but based on what? I mean, based on what? And whose standards are we following? And what does that even mean? And at the end of our life, we all go the same way. 
There's gotta be something else, and there is. There's gotta be something above it all, and there is. There's gotta be something transcendent, and in the story of Jesus, there is. There's something greater because there's someone greater. That's, to me, the story of Christmas. I find myself in this unlikely story because I could actually see myself in all these scenarios. If it was a story of kings and castles and, and... and pomp, and circumstance, and status, and I don't, I don't think I'd be able to look at it and go, yeah, I totally see myself. This is my tribe. But I think anybody can look into this and go, wow, I can't believe that God would do this in, in this way. I see myself in that. How do we respond to something like this? Well, of course, we want to respond by rejoicing and placing our faith in Jesus, we want to receive the peace and hope that he can bring, and we want to share this good news with everybody, as many people as we can. I, I, I love to share the good news of Jesus. I really don't care if people find me a religious fanatic or a little bit too hopped up on religion or, you know, fill in the blank. I'm not trying to be any of those things, but I am, to me, this is the greatest thing in the world. He, he is... He is everything, and I know you believe that. We gather around this holy night. We gather around the Almighty One. We gather around this this thing that doesn't quite make sense to us. There's the mystery of the incarnation. It's beautiful, but it's also mysterious. It's, It's God coming in human flesh, and we go, wow. It's so easy to lose the awe and the wonder to this. Religion will strip it right out of us, where we yawn instead of, live in the awe of God, where we, we sort of swipe instead of focus in and go, wow, God, you're fantastic. You're amazing. You, you could have done anything anyway, but you, you did this. I was listening to somebody tell a story some time ago, and, and uh, in closing, I want to share this with you. It'll take me a little bit to do it. I, I apologize in advance to those of you that might be slightly annoyed by the length of the story. But you did come to church tonight, so you should expect me to do something. But I'd like to close by telling you this story, and I think it's worthy of your time, so uh, focus on this with me. Just try to listen. It's, it's going to take me a few minutes, but, but engage this, would you? And this is how it goes. Years ago, there was a very wealthy man who, with his devoted young son, shared a passion for art collecting. Together, they traveled around the world, adding only the finest art to their collection, Priceless works like Picasso, Van Gogh, Monet, and many others adorned the walls of the family estate. The widowed elderly man looked on with satisfaction as his only child became an experienced art collector. The son's trained eye and sharp business mind caused his father to beam with pride as they dealt with other collectors around the world. As winter approached, the war engulfed the nation, and the young man left to serve his country. After only a few short weeks, his father received a telegram his beloved son was missing in action. The art collector anxiously awaited more news, fearing he would never see his son again, and within days his fears were confirmed. The young man had died while rushing a fellow soldier to a medic. Distraught and lonely, the old man faced the upcoming Christmas holidays with anguish and sadness. The joy of the season, a season that he and his son had looked so forward to, would visit his house no longer. On Christmas morning, a knock on the door awakened the depressed old man. And as he walked to the door, the masterpieces of art on the walls only reminded him that his son was not coming home. As he opened the door, he was greeted by a soldier with a large package in his hand. 
He introduced himself to the man by saying, I was a friend of your son. I was the one he rescued when he died. May I come in for a few moments? I have something to show you. As the two began to talk, the soldier told of how the man's son told everyone of his love for fine art. I'm an artist, said the soldier, and I want to give you this. As the old man unwrapped the package, the paper gave way to reveal a portrait of his son. Though the world would never consider it a work of genius, the painting featured the young man's face in striking detail. Overcome with emotion, the man thanked the soldier, and he promised to hang it up in his fireplace. True to his word, the painting went well above the fireplace, pushing thousands of dollars of paintings to the side. And then the man sat in his chair and spent Christmas gazing at the gift he had been given. During the days and weeks that followed, the man realized that even though his son no longer was with him, the boy's life would live on because of those he had touched. He would soon learn that his son had rescued dozens of wounded soldiers before a bullet stilled his caring heart. As the stories of his son, gallantry continued to reach him, fatherly pride and satisfaction began to ease his grief. The painting of his son soon became his most prized possession, far eclipsing any interest in the pieces for which museums around the world would clamor. He told his neighbors it was the greatest gift he had ever received. The following spring, the old man became ill and he passed away and the art world was in anticipation. Unmindful of the story of the man's only son, but in his honor, those paintings would be sold at an auction. According to the will of the old man, all of the artworks would be auctioned on Christmas Day, which is the day he received his greatest gift. The day soon arrived, and the art collectors from around the world gathered to bid on some of the world's most spectacular paintings. Dreams would be fulfilled this day. Greatness would be achieved, as many could claim, I have the greatest art collection. The auction began with a painting that was not on the museum's list. It was the painting of the man's only son. And the auctioneer asked for an opening bid, and the room was silent. Who will open bidding with $100, he said. No one spoke. From the back of the room came, who cares about the painting? It's just a picture of his son. Let's forget about it and go on to the good stuff. More voices echoed in agreement. No, we, we have to sell this one first, replied the auctioneer. Now who will take the son? Finally, a friend of the old man spoke up. Will you take $10 for the painting? That's, that's all I have. And I knew the boy, so I'd like to have it. I have $10. Will anyone go higher? Called the auctioneer. After more silence, the auctioneer said, going once, going twice, gone. The gavel fell, cheers filled the room, and someone said, now we can get on with it and we can bid on these treasures. The auctioneer looked at the audience and announced the auction was over. Stunned disbelief quieted the room. Someone spoke up and asked, what do you mean it's over? We didn't come here for a picture of some old guy's son. What about all the other paintings, the Monets, the Rembrandts? There are millions of dollars worth of art here. I demand that you explain what's going on. And the auctioneer replied, it's very simple, sir. According to the will of the father, whoever takes the son gets it all. Amen. As I close tonight, I was thinking about that story and how powerful that story is. Now, if you know Christ, you feel a connection in that you know that if you take the Son, you get everything. That's the truth. Christmas is the introduction of God's Son into our world, but not everybody takes the Son. And I want to close... Um, at least my message by saying this, because a lot of you I know 
A lot of you, I know that you love Jesus, and with all of your heart, you serve and follow him. And that's, that's where you're at today. And, and I know we have people tuning in online, but I think it's appropriate and, and most important on Christmas Eve that if we're in a place where we literally do not know personally Jesus Christ is Lord, we're not forgiven of sin, for which is why he came, as we talked about last week, if we do not have a relationship with God, we don't know where we're going when we die, and we will die. If we do not know the love and the affection of the Father that is found in this beautiful story that I definitely did not convey properly this evening. If we don't know that if you take the Son, you get everything, tonight you can know that. And I would just say to you, this is just me as a person, tonight you must know that. You must know that. 23 years ago, I came to know that for the first time in my life. And everything has changed ever since. I found this to, to be true. And I want to simply open up that invitation to you. I'm not here to embarrass anybody or to use Christmas Eve for some sales pitch. I've got nothing to sell. I just believe that human beings have everything to gain. But we can only have it through Christ. We can look, we can search, we can seek but we will not have what we're looking for until we find Christ. This is why God sacrificed everything in doing what he did and why Christmas is so powerful and so meaningful. It's, it's why we're here. It's why we're here. But what's more important is that we would be there, that we would be with God forever. And I think at times we don't think about that. We don't think about, well, I... I wonder what my life's going to be like in 20 years, 50 years, or when I'm gone, but we need to think about that. That's, that's very important for us. We're all on this path, and if we're not on the path with Jesus, we're just simply not on the right one. God loves us with an everlasting love. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do before we go to Advent and, and light our final Christmas candle. I would ask you just to, bow, would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Just honor the presence of God. I know Asking you to do that is, it's, it's, not, it's not to honor me, but just to honor the Lord. And I want to ask you the question. If you're here tonight, and if you're online, you can type into the comments. We, we have somebody that's watching and want to respond to you. But if you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as Lord, you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you've been questioning this, but in your heart, you, you know God's speaking to you, or he's communicating, something's happening, and you feel compelled to respond. I want to know Jesus. I just want you to raise your hand tonight. I'm just looking, and I just want you to raise your hand as a, as a step. Yep, sir, I see you. Yeah. I just want you to take the first step. I'm not going to ask you to come down here right now. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand, and you're just acknowledging, I want to make a step. I, 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 need, I need to know that Jesus is Lord and Savior of my life. If you didn't raise your hand and you wanted to, I would encourage you after the service, we're going to close. I'm asking you to come forward and pray with us. I saw, I saw one person, and sir, I'd like to pray with you after the service. I'd like, I'd like to talk with you about knowing Jesus as Lord. And so if you meant it, I want you to come down here and pray with us. Most important decision you can ever make. For the rest of us, if there's a sense in you tonight that you need God to restore that awe and what wonder we go through life and we get angry, we get upset, we get defensive, we start to harden. It's happened to me, and I'm certain that it's happened to us. And maybe you're at this place in the holiday season as you approach Christmas and you're just like, my heart's not in the right place. 
Something's wrong. I try to fix it. I just can't. I want to fix it. I want it to be better. And friend, maybe you're in a place where you need God's grace to touch you. You need him to do for you what you just haven't been able to do for yourself. And you say to me tonight, Pastor Ben, I love Jesus. I'm a Christian, but something's not right with my heart. And you don't need to get saved again, but you need Jesus to touch your heart again. In this season, let's not let Christmas go by. We're talking about a miracle and a supernatural God. Let's not let it pass by without asking God to visit us, to revive us, to strengthen us. And if that's you, would you raise your hand? Just acknowledge that to me. Say, Ben, I need God to touch my heart tonight. Just go ahead and raise your hand if that's you. I need him to touch my heart. I need him to set me free. I need him to open something up. I need my heart to be made right. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for everybody that raising their hand, just being honest. For the one that said, I want to know Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray, Father, that you would meet him. For all the rest of us that are saying, I need to come back to awe and wonder and and see God as he is. I don't want to have some religious tradition without a reality. I need to know that I'm walking with him and I want to feel his affection and I want the promises of the word of God to be resident in my heart. I want to be thinking about God all the time. And I pray that would be true. For those that were raising their hand tonight, I pray you would visit them powerfully, fill them with the Holy Spirit. Tonight, breathe on their life, God. I pray as we leave here tonight, there would be a sense of a reviving that would happen in our hearts. And it is the Christmas story and the reminding thereof that causes us to look back, but also stand in a living reality as we do. So come and touch our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Would you stand as we move towards Advent? If you've been around here at Northwest Church, you know that one of the things that we're doing is we're lighting an Advent candle every week, and they represent a, a week leading up to Christmas and Christmas Eve service where we light these candles that represent an aspect of Jesus and who he is and what he brought into our lives. And we're celebrating Jesus, and we're, we're proclaiming that Jesus is our hope tonight. We're proclaiming that he is our peace and that he is our joy. And last week we looked at Jesus as the love of God been made manifest to us. And we light the Christ candle. It's white. It represents purity and holiness. And we say tonight, Jesus is the light of the world. So what we're going to do in a candlelight service, we always do, is that if you are on the aisle, you have a candle underneath your seat. Not everybody has one, and I'm sorry. We all get to participate by faith. (laughs) A couple of us by fire. But if you're on the edge, go ahead and take out your candle, and I'm going to light this from the Christ candle, and the ushers are going to come, and they're going to light your candle. Please do tip it sideways, and then quickly back to attention. And let me say to you, friends, this is, this is more than a tradition. We're saying in all reality that Jesus is everything.
Lord, we thank you tonight. We love you. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We look at the unlikely nativity. We thank you for all of the things that we can see from it, how we're included in it. We just respond to you with gratitude, with thankfulness in our hearts. We love you, Lord, and so we sing to you and worship tonight. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.